This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. McCard carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. Uh, Just next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio Sirius XM Channel 132 every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Glad to be here. Glad to be back. Glad to have the whole crew in here. You guys were fired up when I walked in. There's some things going on, some things people are fired up about. Hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. Is our handle there at W Moneyball? Great way to reach out to us, give us comments, questions. Whatever. I've been doing a lot of tweeting. Bradlow's been tweeting. Audie Weiner had a whole thread going on I last did night. Have a thread. T- t- last couple of days. Yeah. About, really about drafting? Yes, yeah. you got yeah, about drafting. Up, Ivy League drafting, uh, recruiting. Actually, Ivy League recruiting in the NFL. I mean, in football, not the NFL. But Audie digs into some. I, I love this about Audie. It's like he doesn't care what the sport is. Really, I mean, the only reason he likes football now is that he's been doing statistics in football. So he digs into recruiting rankings and discovers that Ivy League recruiting has gone through the roof in recent years, especially the big three. The big three, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, are leading the charge, particularly Yale. So I was, uh, you know, you know, a little proud of my alma mater on that one. And Penn and Columbia are the next year, and then the remaining Ivy Leagues are really, really... Yeah, Dartmouth and Cornell. Dartmouth, Cornell, and nothing. And just I mean, just, just nothing. to be clear, these are re- real athletes, not these like are real rich athletes. people these are, posing <laughs> as athletes. <laughs> yes, I would, these, are, okay. these are very good. Because that's another very way the Ivy League recruiting could have gone through the roof. It, yeah, it takes place everywhere uh it could have it could have but these guys are nationally ranked um with stars they have three stars typically um and princeton actually drafted their or recruited their first the first ivy don't league say, four don't say draft i didn't say drafted recruited their first four uh four, four star, star to princeton to princeton and well, four know, stars are much more uncommon it's about well, 350 got, i mean there's a player i just don't remember his name that's on i think yale right now that they're saying will go in the first round of the nba draft is that right and we're talking about that's nba yes okay well we're NBA talking NFL. also no i'm just saying yeah. Yeah. no i understand that but i'm wow. saying there's a player that's on Yale right now that they're saying will be a first round NBA that's player. Maybe even Shashevsky yeah. even says maybe top ten. That's amazing. What? Wow. But here's the, the question that I posed, which was why what has changed in the last ten years that has made this possible? So the obvious question is are there more ranked players? And the answer is slightly, but not mm-hmm. uh, maybe there is about increase about twenty five percent ranked players, but that's not enough to drive and it happened if you looked at the trend, it the increase happened right in the middle of the rise. It's not like okay. it would it started earlier. Okay. Would one explanation be that, you know, um, because of whether it's social media, whether it's T V availability, whether it's video, other types that you can go to to a school that doesn't necessarily get the same, you know, used you to, be, to be. If you, you don't have to be like showcased on CBS to, to actually before. get the yeah. notoriety, and so there's a broader set of schools to which you can, in some sense, get noticed, build your brand. Why not? I also think that the well, val- I mean, the proof of that would be in a few years whether they actually start getting drafted right into the NFL. Could be, but I, actually, I think that their their odds of getting drafted are still extremely low, and I think they are valuing the education aspect of it potentially more than they used to. And this is just a hypothesis; I have no real data. Um, I also think the Ivy League programs are probably better than they ever were, relatively mm-hmm. speaking. There, so that I agree with all that. One technological explanation that goes in the other way is that you know these teams up here aren't exactly in the hotbeds of college football recruiting, and historically that would be a real liability. But we, we've been hypothesizing in the yeah. last couple few months that. One of one of the things we've seen in recruiting is that players travel further. 
possibly because technology has made it easier for teams to assess, to evaluate players, to get tape on players, and so it's not quite as geographically constrained as it used to be. If that's true, it would benefit the Ivies as well because they're about as far from the recruiting hotbeds as they could possibly be. Can I ask, in terms of this trend, what's gone on with Stanford recruiting over the last decade or so? As, as essentially an Ivy League school, right. but that actually is good at football, and, and you know you'd kind of get the best of both worlds at Stanford, right? I tell you, if from, you were if, a, if you if you were this like kind of new athlete that values your education more, right. etc. Well, I mean, showcasing. Kate, right, no, the answer I, yeah. I, I don't I, actually know. I, so it's a, your gun, your data will show, and we could answer we could look it at empirically it, yeah. back. And tell you as a, as a as a Longhorn fan who's pulled for athletes who've who've sometimes come down to choosing between Texas and Stanford. They seem to do really well. They definitely recruit nationally. And a good comp might be Notre Dame. They're just damn near caught up with Notre Dame in terms of appeal. But they still have very high admissions requirements. And so they're trying to play with other D1 powers, and yet they've got the admission requirements of like an Ivy. Right. And it is a binding constraint. And there are players who, it's like, it's like this guy's going to, it's between Stanford and Texas, he's going to choose Stanford if he gets in, and you're like, pull, you can't. I mean, you, <laughs> but you have to remember, Stan, just, <laughs> you just fail yeah. one exam, you can't sir. Do that. Right, right. Stanford is, is, is trying to get four-star players, and, uh, and now, probably obviously is, have a lot of threes as well, because there are many, many more threes than fours. But... Yale is is just setting her sights on threes. I mean, a four would be an unbelievable um, ability to pull. So that's just they're just in completely different different. Yeah, I just thought the same sort of trends might affect both. Well, it would be it'd be worth looking at more closely. But anecdotally, they they had the twenty one twenty first best class this year, which you know it's I mean that's that's up there. It's not not where they want to be. But forty last year, they've been off a little bit. Of course, when Harbaugh was there, they were probably hitting a little bit harder uh i know that you guys made the baseball game last night yeah gorgeous game last night gorgeous weather beautiful night so uh, i mean interesting game (laughs) didn't end well the nats were in town look i caught a little bit of it on tv over dinner and the fills were up early and i thought well you know what what do you think the probability is if you're up if an if an mlb team is up 4-1 at home they were up 6-1 even later in the game later yep so that probability is what 90 percent 95 percent it's about 90 yeah 90 percent and they lose 10-6 in extra innings yeah yeah. So did y'all sit through the all ten? I, I did. Yeah, I did not. I, there. I uh, had a daughter well, to, who I promised I'd get home to last night. Well, what do you think this? The odds are. So how about being up six to five, two outs in the ninth with a two-two count? Oh my! One about no one, nobody on base. So okay. one in twenty. <laughs> really? That's how it went. Yeah, yeah and, and then the guy threw an eighty-five. When you throw an eighty-five mile an hour slider right over the middle of the plate to a, to defensive, a major league a defensive specialist, yeah, by to way. a defensive yeah. specialist <laughs> player, and he hits a home run, your bullpen's not doing its job. Oh my goodness! Okay, all right. Well, the Yankee bullpen folded two games in a row against. Well, Houston. we don't need to talk about <laughs> pitching across <laughs> right. the rest of me, Major League Baseball, do we? Do, we can we just do. focus I do. I on think the Phillies. Come on, come on, tell us what's going on in in Boston. Oh, I just like to hear it. Are <laughs> horrible. They are. Oh, they are just a okay. But I'm, garbage but if, fire right if, now. If y'all weren't so invested, oh, you would be yeah. saying you know objective distributional things like, well, it's only ten games. No, but let's, don't overreact. I, right. I, I, it, this has probably changed in the last couple games, but up until the last couple games, the Red Sox were historically poor. Like their run differential was over historically twice. Historically poor in a seven-game sample. Well, you can't. You can actually. I mean, <laughs> you may not mean no, anything. You may not mean anything over the course of an entire season, no. but you can, in fact, look at the history of. He, he's like, talking about starting from a team that was so dominant the previous year and then being so phenomenally so, weak in the beginning of the okay. season. That's unusual. Or 
or just their starting pitching was but I actually said, I mean, historically I think the, bad the, over the, Red the first Sox, games. The better question is, what are we forecasting for the Red Sox? Well, yeah. so that point. That I think gonna, they're under 90 wins. Well, so here's the – so let's do a little bit – this is the math I was just going to ask you guys about. So they're 12 games in. I believe they're 3-9. and nine. They are. Okay, so let's imagine that they should have been, according to the projections, just to say round 7-5. and five. So let's say they're just – if we still believe they're the same team that they were, they're four games behind pace right now. So already we have to take them down at least four. But now there's the second factor, which is maybe we thought they were a 600 team. Now we downgrade them to, let's say, a 550 team. But that's the question. No, that's the question. That's the question. Because we know the first of – let's call it the primary effect – they're at least you have to downgrade them at least four. Yeah, so games. that brings them down to about ninety one, ninety two. Correct. Wins. That wins them to ninety one, ninety two. So I would think that it doesn't take much if they go from a six hundred team, even to say, well, maybe they're a five eighty team. Yep. That already takes you below ninety. So you would have to go below ninety so at this point. Fangraphs is at eighty eight right now. All right. Well, there we go. So, yeah. By the way, I that think, was that was uh, so that they're updating with last night's loss. Okay. <laughs> See that that part of the early season, I think, is what's one of the main things that's fun about sports and in fact once you have that second parameter resolved that that true parameter that power ranking that you're trying to assess on team then the rest of the season is not quite as interesting like the first half of the football season is always the most interesting because you're trying to figure out what those fundamental quality ratings are and just how i mean football is i i think you can go beyond the first half in 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 that thought experiment because you know there's unbalanced schedules and stuff like that you can be three quarters of the way through the season i think and not really know a particular team team strength the other thing that's interesting is that how much especially this is your cade was your question to shane earlier is how much early in the season one or two games can matter like if we were sitting here right now and the red sox were five and seven We'd be saying, well, there's certainly two behind the pace. Okay. But now, all of a sudden, people wouldn't be saying, well, maybe they were a 600 team. Now they're a 550 team. Like, 600 teams do go 5 and 7. Yeah. So I understand there is math behind it, but even just the psychology of it, because yeah. they seem to be so far behind the right. 600 pace right. that yeah, we're getting, massively downgrading 600 to something. They're not just losing. They're getting killed out there, and it's it's. Okay, on, on the more positive side, what's yeah. the latest on? I don't actually know if this is positive or not, but Bryce Harper, how's he looking? Oh, oh he's looking fantastic. He hit a three run bomb last night. It was majestic. Opposite field, by the way, which is yeah. remarkable. And he walks and he's hitting, you know, 300, which is probably not that important. He's and honestly, he's 500. He, walking around that stadium, you'd think that literally every single Phillies fan bought a Harper jersey. Right. <laughs> but let me add two, two interesting facts so that I noticed. Quickly, when do it, players get a piece of that in their particular jersey? I don't actually think. Do they? That's MLB an owns question. these things, and 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 I it's mean, part of the player's contract. Uh, that's a good question. Yeah, but let me just a couple of things that I noticed from where I was sitting last night, which you know, real thanks to to uh, to the Nationals who tossed me a couple of tickets right behind home plate with the other little, scouts. A little boasty, yeah, a little, a little boasty, a little boasty. But to, very happy to about the that. Phillies organization for selling me tickets yes, to right. the outfield Actually, yesterday. You, you probably, did you buy them directly from the Phillies, or, or oh, I don't even, I don't even know. Yeah. But um, I was right behind home plate with the the scouts. Some of them have radar guns, which is odd because I was able to see them. And every time they took a radar measurement, it matches what was on the scoreboard. So it just it's just like a habit, apparently. And they're doing this. But I had a good view of Bryce Harper, completely flub, uh, uh, not a particularly how, how, hard. How big is a radar gun? They're sitting in the stands of, a, of a game. Sat, with, I've sat in the areas with scouts. That's the standard old radar gun. Eight you know, inches from the seventies that the yeah. GPS officers yeah. used to have. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Yeah, like the police <laughs> officer would have sitting in his car. Yep, they're That's sitting hilarious. there with it, and, right. and, they, and they point it right at the at the uh, at the pitch, and it produces exactly the same number on the scoreboard. Right. So I just, you know, this is just a habit. By the way, um, yeah, sorry. And I also learned, by the way, that a lot of teams do use these, or scouts do these, but Astros have no scouts who do this at all, right. and they're considered the best analytic yeah. team. They do not bother with this this entire charade. Which is exactly right. Kate is just nodding his head. By the way, before we leave, because we could leave baseball, we we, ha- we should. By the way, haven't even we'll talked get to about basketball. the NCAA yet. Yeah. No, I, what I was going to say before we leave baseball is seven point five times ten to the minus seven a small number? Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right, just checking because you know something historic is happening in baseball. I'm surprised you haven't brought it up. Oh, you're talking about uh, Chris the, Davis. The Chris Davis is ridiculous. Oh, yeah. Now, now let's just do a little. But you're you're you're, 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 you're going to have to make some assumptions to get that number. But let me just let me just close the book on Harper because I was arguing vociferously in favor of Harper based on his ga- his gaudy and I think excellent historical offensive numbers. But people were very hard on his defense, and I was trying to be protective of that, arguing you know he's in right field. It's just not that valuable a defensive position, and he brings a lot. And there was a huge disparity in the numbers. But where I was oh, sitting oh, yesterday, okay. my memory is that he was playing center, and that's not he his was playing best center, position, and, and so they're going to. Right. Him over and, to and right. he's, mm-hmm. he's, he's a right fielder, and he was in right field. And in the very first inning, there was a, a, a challenging but very catchable ball hit to right field, and he just flubbed it for a double and a run. And I'm, I'm looking at it and going, oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, he, and he, he looked awkward out in the outfield. That was just my, just my assessment. Right. So here, real quickly, we talk a lot about technology enabling players to get better as pitchers, as hitters. Is there anything we're doing to develop them better defensively? Do we have some any of the same advances besides on the positioning? No, yes, right. Besides, so positioning is one one way to approach it. But you could imagine some element of ball tracking and stuff like that is teachable. I don't. I don't know. I don't know how to the extent that that is adaptable or whether. I, well, also, players why couldn't have you? I mean, I, on that. Well, I assume you could also measure someone's angle that they're taking towards they the do ball. Measure yeah, that. I guess and that's, that's what, what I meant by the ball tracking. That's what I meant oh, by the I ball you were tracking. Saying, I, I thought, I'm talking about the fielder tracking. Like I oh, took the wrong no, angle no. towards this ball, so you could imagine going to the they actually calculate what's called the shortest path to the ball. No, we we know that the, that gets calculated. We're asking whether or not fielders, having known that information, can improve upon that right. skill. Is it, is it, is it and that is not thing. clear to me. You know, you think maybe through sports science, they, they, I mean, they might get better condition. They 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 know that I don't know the training or the the conditioning that's more important for a right fielder. I, I don't know. Is that is that antithetical to being a good hitter? Do you have to train differently? Like what, what has Trout done to manage to be so good at both? How does he how does he manage the tension between what kind of training he needs to be a good batter versus a good fielder? Okay. <laughs> I would also imagine that they would have reaction time. Like for example, when the ball is hit, how long does it take Bryce Harper to actually move towards yeah. the ball? But, but That's get, not hard to measure so at these, all. These th- but you've named two things that might be good at identifying players who are better, but not malleable, not training, not trainable. We don't know. I, I, yeah. yeah. We don't know. Conceptually, I agree with you. They seem, I, I think they are trainable, but either way, they're measurable. All At right. least they're measurable. Yeah, they're definitely measurable. All right, fellas, NCAA game, did you watch it? My, oh, yeah. My in-laws, hometown, Lubbock, Texas Tech Red Raiders, chance for a Texas team to win yeah. the title for the first time since 1966. It was a hell of a game. The odds of that game, inter- internal to the game, were fluctuating. They moved bizarrely. around a lot. So it was a one-point line when it tipped, I believe, it, that down from what would have been five and a half if they had done it at the beginning of the tournament because UVA had not looked that good and Tech looked great. Um, UVA comes out strong. Tech battles back. UVA opens it up again. Tech battles back and goes ahead late. 
and then UVA three times, three times in the tournament they've been down with just seconds. Yeah, so I mean, that's what I was going to point out is that, you know, people want to talk about, I mean, not that the last game wasn't exciting, went to overtime, obviously, but I mean, let's remember again, um, Virginia was down to Purdue with 5.7 seconds left, and Purdue did the right thing, which was to foul. Although it turned out not to I, be the right thing because of there was well there was a double dribble before that there was also it turned out the guy had flubbed the ball and so he would have actually wouldn't have had time for a shot anyway but conceptually that was the right thing. that was the one with the seventy foot pass and that the guy on uh, when you say that's the right thing that's not uncontroversial right I mean no, it's, not odds, it's not uncontroversial it's, it's like no. the, the odds of, of of not fouling about the don't same. are about the same yeah they were then down to Auburn obviously late in that game miss free throw helped and of course the Foul called that actually, you know, and then the guy had to make three free throws. Mm-hmm. So there was that as well. And then, of course, they were, as Cage has pointed out, they were down three to Texas Tech. And the guy made a three with 13 seconds left. And beautiful. then it was, was a beautiful shot. And then, of course, Texas Tech missed a shot, which could have also won them the game. So, I mean, they had three at best. What would you say? They were at best 20%, 10, 15, oh, 10 to 15%. Between 5 and 10 and 15%. Between 5 yep. and 10% and three, three of them. times. Yep. That's what, that's what from know, a statistical of, point of view, that's remarkable. It's, a couple of things that I, when I was watching these games, which I did watch, and, and uh, is that one of the things that we do, I think, as statisticians, is we do suck some of the joy out of these actual moments by being so focused on the fact that there's no context. We take extract information and say, oh, pressure, you know, and, and, and importance of a situation. We don't use those when we evaluate future performance. But when you actually watch the game, they matter more than anything else. And the, and the, the uh, Virginia player who sunk those three free throws, what's a free throw? What does that mean to anybody? Nothing. I mean, we know all about your free guy, story. We guy was his last name. His name's Guy. And, and the, imagine the pressure on this guy, mm. this guy, Guy, well, an to do this. And you and you think, and it's not going to matter at all in any of the calculations we do going forward or we think about these players. Yet this was absolutely well, two everything. comments. two comments on that. One is he said going up to the line, he had an interesting philosophy. He said, I knew I was either going to hit one or three. Hmm. He said, when I hit the first one, I knew I was going to make all three. He said, if I had missed the first one, I knew there was no way I was going to make the next two. <laughs> That's what he said to himself as he was going to lunch. I'm just telling you what he said. Uh-huh. The second thing is just to show you the pressure. I also happened to watch the women's championship game, which was the day before. Which, which was Notre, champ- right, right. Notre Dame against Baylor. The woman who had, I just don't remember exactly how to pronounce her name, the woman who had hit a three before to defeat Connecticut. You remember Connecticut was like the ten-time straight champion. She was at the foul line. With 1.5 seconds left, down two, and she made one of two. She missed the first free throw. And so, again, there's the, I don't say they would have won the game, but the game certainly would have gone into overtime. Nobody had any timeouts. So to talk about the pressure, this person had already won a national championship by hitting big shots and missed free throws, and now this guy hits three. And to me, when I think back about all the things that happened for Virginia to win, that's probably what I'll think about the most. Wait, the immense we, pressure that yeah, must yeah, have I been agree, but It doesn't go yeah. into any of our calculations. To make all three. Wait, I mean, point, you, even if you say point .8 is an 80% free throw shooter, point eight. I mean, at best you're saying it's 50%, but I can't imagine anybody's going to say he's point eight under that pressure. Have you moment. ever seen anybody carry himself in the way he carried himself as well? I mean, he's like smiling up there. It's just, it's just, he seemed like an unusual character. 
I mean, it's a good shot anywhere, but to step up to the line with that disposition. What are and his, he did it, he did it in, the, in the finals as well. What are his prospects for NBA? I, mean, I, don't, he, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I'm not following it closely enough, but I thought I did hear that he was first team all ACC, which is yes. a hell of an achievement. I think they think that there were the two top talents, I just don't remember, on Virginia. There was there's one player at each team on Texas Tech, maybe not Corver, but something like that, and a player on Virginia. that they, Culver. Culver, thank you. The Big 12 player of the year. Okay, Culver, and then there's a player also on Virginia. The guy that hit the three. I just don't remember. The Hunter. Guy, Hunter. Hunter. Mm-hmm. they thinking the two of them are top prospects. The other guys, they're thinking Guy, and there's another guy also on uh, Virginia. They're saying maybe second-round prospects. Well, this, is, is Guy, uh, is, he's got that outside shot. Is he? I mean, Reddick was a great college player. People probably didn't think he was going to do that much in pros, and he's put together a heck of a career, right, based on being able to get that shot. Oh, yeah, and his, picking his, up- I, I think his career expectation, he's oh, definitely overachieved his career expectations. Who, Reddick? Yeah. Oh, by far. Yeah. I mean, so, another I mean, guy, Kyle Korver. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the, there's so another the, guy. In today's NBA, if you've got, and you need those guys who can knock down the threes out there. So they've got to learn how to play a little D, at least acceptable D. But if you got that shot, that in today's NBA, it's great. I want to say the thing that jumped out to me was Hunter's game. The guy was four or five in for three points in the, against Tech. It seemed like he was about seven for eight. But it's a small sample. But you're not supposed to hit 80%. From, from the three-point line, and he's the one that buried it at the end, but it was earlier in the game. He just he might have been he might have hit them all in the second half. He, he was might, having a terrible first half, as I remember. In fact, I think he had four points. Maybe he made made no field goals in the first half. Okay, he ended so up with something like 27. 27. Did it, career high. Did it seem to you at the very, the very last uh, three-point shot that they, they made to tie the game that he was completely unguarded? Well, yes. he was because, because what's-his-name pulled everybody off and pulled him away. So their guard, Jerome, drives... And basically, too many people helped. Both guys came from the weak side to help, leaving him. But you have open. to question: Why would you help when you're when up it's three, only three points? And, yeah. and it's you know, know. why? That's but I mean, it's I, so instinctive. I mean, it, I know. On, they, have to, they, have to, they I don't. Maybe they needed to have talked through a strategy better. But Jerome, all game long, Jerome takes his guy to the left and either gets the bucket or feeds feeds Hunter in the corner. All game <laughs> he, long, he does the same I'm, thing. I'm just going to go back to something that we talked about earlier. It turns out that the the strategy of of defending against the three po- three three-point shot is very successful because it's very hard to hit a three-point shot when people are guarding you. And but what happens is is that to guard you have to give up the two, but you can give up the two in that situation. Yeah. And that seems to be exactly what they did not do. They guarded against the I two. Agree. I thought no, it was surprising to me Given also, as Cade said, Hunter had been. It's not like he uh, had no you, points. This is the, this guy know, is like, their best player. He was hot at that point. He's like, he you was might, you shockingly. Might, open. You might have said, yeah. "Leave someone on him, no matter what. Someone stays on him. If you got to give Jerome the layup, give it. But give like it. one guy stays on him. You might have said that. I mean, because look, we're going to question Beard, the coach of the year. I mean, but but hindsight, you know, and so it's hard not to see it. Because we talked about, you mentioned the 7 out of 8 or the 8, and free throws, I mean, three-point shots are very interesting because they're the shots that have the, the biggest variance in the probability of making it depending on the context. And that's just not just distance, By the, way, it's the coverage. I mean, someone like, like Seth Curry can make 75 in a row in practice unguarded. No problem. He just does this. So it's not just the distance. It's the intensity well, and the guarding. Also, people also talk about the three free throws that Guy made on Virginia. People forget six seconds earlier he made a highly contested three that even gave them a shot to win yeah, that right, game. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that shot was beyond NBA range and highly contested. So he misses that shot. There's okay. no free throws. There's no anything. So they lose. What do you like? St- stepping back, what do you make of a team that wins the title 
hitting this many improbable events over three games, much less what happens just, I mean, over one game, much less what happens over a three-game streak. So, I'll go, I'll go I mean, first. I'll, go, I'll use the Adi Weiner theorem. It's a big N, small yep. pre-pump. It's, freq- it's, it's rate times sample size. Is that, you know, lots and lots of games are played. And you know, there is the, a winner. That's there, another way to say the, it. Right. Every is, list has its top and bottom. Not only that, but it's just <laughs> saying that even if this, even if you want to say they were ten percent, or so point one times point one times point one. Okay, so that's what one in a thousand. All right. So okay, so lots and lots of games are played, and maybe over the course of a year, we there's probably more than a thousand. I mean, that's we we would see a couple games like this. Now, would we see it in this context? That's a totally different situation, but it's not that rare but, that you three point one games or something would I, be I, one I, in a I, row. I don't. So the main question I want to ask is on the inference on UVA, and I mean, talk about wanting to take the fun out of it. Here, well, that's here's what we're doing. Take the fun out. I was like, <laughs> look, the story is no, I wouldn't got, pick them to the, win next the, year. Well, the story is they got knocked out last year in the worst defeat in the NCAA tournament history. We had wondered for years when a one was going to lose to a 16. They lost. They not only were a one, they were the overall number one. I know they, that. They not only lost, they lost by 20. So from that to this, and so the narrative was they've got this chip on the shoulder, they've been working for this all year, it's this grand story. This is That's the fairy tale story. That's where it's supposed to go. So that's that's one side. And the other side is, Eric's. you know, you watch enough games and this is going to happen. Well, it's you're both chance. right, of course. <laughs> I hate to say it. I mean, it is a fairy. That's what makes it beautiful. It's just, it's, and Eric, of course, is right. If I had to pre- pick this tournament to replay, I wouldn't expect UVA to win it or or have Look, I mean, the, most, gonna the most shocking I mean, play the of the structure whole- of the tournament is such that that's going to happen, yeah. right? You're always going to have some team that kind of comes out, or not always, but Squeaks like you, through or whatever it, it is. You know, it. it, it the tournament structure, I guess, makes for fairy tale stories. So in I my guess mind. that's good. I guess no, that's it good is. For, I think for it entertainment. Is. I mean, it's, it's not good if you want a fairy tale structure, a fairy tale to happen to your no. specific but, but the, team. But if you just want a fairy tale structure and you don't care if it's Gonzaga right. this year, <laughs> right. Or you know, Brady right. next year, Butler, 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 Butler. 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 a few inches away from knocking. Down. Yeah. You, you use the magic word. It's entertainment. Yeah, that's right. So let me ask a more statistically related question. Do you think? I mean, I'm not going to use the word momentum. Do you think the conditional probability of Virginia winning a close game, given they've already won yeah, one is, or two this, close yeah, games, right, right. is higher? So yeah. maybe it's not point one. Maybe it. Maybe the third one isn't point one anymore because look, they shockingly beat Purdue when you know they had the ball down to seventy feet from the hoop. They had to pass to With a guy, Diakate, who can't shoot, and he buries a twelve footer to send him to the, overtime. I mean, maybe. I don't call it team of destiny because I don't want to use non-statistical terms. Is there any chance that by the second... Yes, I'm going to say yes, there is a chance. I, I agree. I uh, agree. Only because they, they have a certain set of sk- uh, skills in their toolkit which allow for this. In particular... Did you say only? I mean, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go beyond that. I mean, I do think belief they matters. They have hearts. I do th- not, yeah. not about heart. I think belief. I think optimism... Big hearts. Not belief. I think, I think belief... You're more likely to win. You're more likely to achieve something when you have a positive belief that you can achieve it. Now, there's limits to that. There are limits to that, but the marginal impact, I believe, is positive. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, you have to, you have to argue that there's no psychological. Comp- 
component to their performance. No, no, I'm arguing you... that it could be a small component and hard to measure. I'm not oh, saying it doesn't well, I, exist. I, I think I'm just talking it's a low-power no, no, type no, no, of thing no, to that's measure. Right. I, I mean, How big I, is I think the we're all in agreement size? that it would be very hard to measure, and it's probably not a huge component. But yeah, I mean, if you acknowledge that there's a psychological component to these, well, I'll give you another theory. You know, people's success, then obviously, like you know, their past success can influence their future. I'll give you another theory. Maybe it relates to Kate's point. Why it's higher than point one? Here's another possible theory. There are many teams that just because of their psychological makeup or the way they're coached, don't I'll call it play the entire forty minutes or forty eight minutes. Maybe there's a mixture distribution. There's some teams that some people like. Well, we're down six with six seconds. We're just not winning this game. Yeah. So what you observe yeah. in the margin yeah. is a mixture between two types. But if I told you the type that Virginia was, it's actually higher than point one. And maybe, you know, when we observe these stats, they have a 10% chance of winning. Yeah, because that's a mixture of two types, teams that give up at the end and teams that don't. I just don't think it changes the odds discernibly. I, they go from like a 10 to a 15% chance of winning probably under this. Well, it and does then, raise then, things. Then, that yeah. do, It's a multiplicative model that does yeah. raise your probability significantly. So speaking of probability of winning, we have a new event coming up this weekend that i got to check in with you guys. Yeah. I'm curious. We haven't really talked about it. So it's been a while. We don't need to spend too much time on it. But who's got momentum in Game of Thrones? <laughs> oh, I think the Night King's got a lot of momentum. <laughs> he does, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. Can I, can I point Yeah. There, there's actually been somewhat serious analysis done of this. Of oh, course. I mean, like with machine, using, like, learning machine learning and like data tech. collection. Yeah. And, Why wouldn't I mean, you? <laughs> Why wouldn't you? <laughs> Okay, look. I don't want to answer that. Real quick assessment. Who's actually been watching this thing? Um, Yes. Fanatically. That was my rank order of likelihood among my co-hosts was one, Shane, two, Adi, probably just above expectation, and Eric, definitely third and unlikely to be involved in. Not involved. Not involved. Not involved. Too busy watching sports. It's one of the things that my son and I do. Odds of winning. There are betting markets on this. Leading, leading, top of the odds market. Brand Stark. Interesting. Are these not actual? Who I put are these, up there? Yeah. Are these not actual who I betting have up there? Okay. Yeah. Second, Jon Snow. Third, Sansa Stark. She's above, really moving up above Daenerys. Above yeah. Daenerys. She's really yeah. attained a certain seriousness. I would have. I mean, Daenerys. I mean, I don't. I don't really understand. I mean, we could really break down the rest of these odds. I don't really understand them. The Night King's way too low. Cersei's yeah. way too low. Yeah. They're, they're, um, they're, how about nobody? I think nobody is way too low. There's a chance that that no one sits on this thing. Okay. Last. Last one. This is you know arguably more entertaining. The first to die in season eight. Oh, that's the major better. characters yeah. first to die. You know, season seven disappointing and not killing enough people. So probably going to come back with some early deaths in season eight. I think so. Leading the leading leading top of the market, both great. Actually, three of the top four Greyjoys: Euron Greyjoy, Yara Greyjoy, and number four Theon Greyjoy. Mm. You yeah. know what? I'm not sure that they quite understand this 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 uh, this series. If you remember the very first season, the star, the leading character, the most dramatic and important figure gets knocked off. That's not, not that first, list. But no, he's not the but, first, but, 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 but I mean, you, you as uh, a watcher well, of the uh, series, you would agree that at least in the last... You know, season or so, they seem to have softened. They softened a little we, bit. We don't dead. see the uh, sadly, we don't see the tra- stars dying so much. Of the stars, of the stars, the highest rated, most likely to be killed, according to the odds, odds market, Sansa Stark plus three fifty. Sansa Stark, quite quite a bit more likely than Jamie Lannister coming up below the below the Greyjoys. All right, that's enough on Game of Thrones. But we're going to revisit in the over under segment at the end of the show a little GOT for you. We are rolling into the guest segments of our show this half hour and next. Joining us in this half hour, Joe Banner. Could not be happier to have Joe joining us on the show. Good morning, Joe. Welcome. 
Uh, glad to be on. It's an honor. It's an honor to have you, Joe. Where are you calling in from today? I am in Florida. So. Well, we, we, we learned that recently, that you're down there. When we first thought about having you, we were hoping we might get you in the studio. If you do make any return trips and you happen to be here on a Wednesday, let us know. We'd love to have you in here in person. We'd love to spend more time with you, but we thank you for taking the time to be with us this morning. Joe, as many of you know, he's a former NFL exec, 20 years, president of the Philadelphia Eagles and then CEO of the Cleveland Browns. He's an avid follower and astute observer of the NFL. You can follow him on Twitter at Joe Banner 13 at Joe Banner 13 is his account. Joe, can you tell us a little bit of your background? We've got lots of questions we want to talk with you about, about the current NFL, but just to give our listeners a sense, what, what, how did you get started? So Jeff Lurie hires you in to Philadelphia. How did that happen? And what, what were your responsibilities when you were with the Eagles? So as big a surprise to me as everybody, I was a childhood friend of Jeff Lurie's, uh, not my best friend, and I wasn't his best friend, but we uh, built a relationship mostly around watching sports, and uh, kind of out of the blue, I got a call from him saying that he was uh, going to pursue trying to buy a professional sports team, which had been a dream for a long time, and was I willing to help him work on the acquisition, and if so, help him come in and run the team, and so... Mm-hmm. When people ask me how did I get into sports, I don't have a story they can easily replicate. Right. Um, so, and my uh, job there was really overseeing the day-to-day operation. Jeff kind of defined the kind of macro philosophies and primary goals of the franchise. Uh, participate obviously in the key hire, including myself, and then uh, let a lot of us, uh, myself, eventually Andy Reid and some others, uh, have the authority and kind of the space to uh, include him, represent him, but. Uh, kind of drive the engine on a day-to-day basis. In my case, that included really the whole organization, although Andy Reid and I worked kind of as partners. Uh, I was really responsible for the whole day-to-day operation. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting to me that you're with the Eagles and then with the Browns. We want to hear a little bit about your Browns experience as well, because if you look around the league right now and you named the most kind of analytically forward teams, at least up until maybe the recent regime change in Cleveland, you would name... Eagles and Browns among the top four, five teams, maybe, you know, among the top three. And I'm guessing it's not an accident that you spent extended time at both of them. Well, certainly not in Philadelphia. And what they grew into in Cleveland was what I was trying to start, but I'm not sure I was there long enough to take credit or really blame for anything that happened there. Mm -hmm. Um, But in Philadelphia, you know, everybody's secretive. I mean, we think we were the first team to really truly have an analytics department with people that had that expertise and, and background. Mm-hmm. Almost funny to think of the things that they were working on that we considered innovative when you look at what's going on now. What, but, what's an example, Jim? Well, I mean, we were back to, uh, well, I'll give you just a little anecdote. I remember sitting with John Gruden, um, with a guy we had brought in to do some specific work that we would call the analytics, but was probably so superficial it wasn't, but it was advanced for the NFL. Mm-hmm. And we presented him a study uh, John is a very, very innovative offensive coach, but he loves to run the ball almost every first down. Mm-hmm. So we presented him a study on how much more effective his offense would be overall and how many more points he was likely to score if he just was more balanced. We weren't suggesting he come out and throw the ball every first down or anything. And <laughs> to say that John didn't embrace our research would be... <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, so, so is that kind of, uh, you know, really, again, it's almost a stretch to call it analytics. It was almost an extension of uh, what 
coaches have been doing for years, but since it wasn't exactly what they've been doing for years, it was very hard right. to get them to listen to. Right. So, Joe, this is Eric Brad, though obviously I worked for you for five years, yeah. you and Howie, and so I wanted to first say, um, I wanted to echo what you had just said. As far as I know, um, the organization that you built at the Eagles was the first organization really to do uh, advanced analytics. And first, I wanted to thank you for that. It was a great learning experience for me. I wanted to ask you a question about that. Of all of your time at the Eagles, what would you say was the most successful use of analytics that you got that, you know, kind of whether it was the five years I was working with you guys or since then, what was the most successful application that you guys had? Well, I think that all the game day stuff that was, again, as as you know, we were very early and then I think defining how to build teams. I, I have some reservations about the extent of analytics in player evaluations uh, because so much of the work I did indicated that a huge factor in player success was the intangibles of the player. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking whether they were getting arrested or not. I'm just talking, you know, how driven were they? How bad did they want to be great? What was their work ethic? You know, how well could they work with teammates? Because it's a team sport. Yep. Um, so the stuff around the way the game can be played was just, well, it's evolved, but it still has a long way to go. And that was at the time just you know, breakthrough stuff. And then building team. I mean, we really confirmed what, you know, to some was obvious and to many wasn't. Um, if you have a great quarterback and you can control both lines of scrimmage, uh, you've uh, the whole rest of the team is better, mm-hmm. and we were able to work through things that uh, more than intuitively, uh, at least I would argue. Some, as you know, refuted it, but uh, would argue we kind of proved that and and influenced how we built the teams. I mean, if you look at the 14 years Andy Reid was there, um, you know, we did nothing until we knew we could control both lines of scrimmage. If you look at the Eagles winning the Super Bowl two years ago. I mean, they really had some serious holes on defense, and they may have had one of the best defensive lines we've seen in years. And lo and behold, all of a sudden they have a defense that was competing with the best teams in the league. So mm-hmm. I think those were the things that we were were actionable at the time, partially because the coaches are just were so resistant to it. Uh, that really started to make a difference and improve the concept a bit. You know, that resistance is one of the reasons these things take so long. And I think people, I think people even inside underestimate how long it takes to build the kinds of organizations you're talking about, whether it's more analytics in the game day decision-making or a more sophisticated scouting staff or just a coherent offensive philosophy that's going to help you inform who you bring on. I mean, those aren't things you can do in a year or two years. Those are seven, eight, ten-year projects, right? So this is something you saw, you had the chance to be a part of it in Philadelphia, and then I think it's one of the things that contrasts with your experience at Cleveland is that there wasn't the vision or the patience to stay with it for that long. No, and there wasn't even appreciation at the time of the value in what we were doing. I mean, it's been kind of lost in, in things that happened after I left, but uh, had we been allowed to proceed with a Josh Gordon trade that we had, uh, at the end of one year, we would have gone from having about $15 million in cap room to almost 60, which at the time was the equivalent now of over 100. And we would have had two ones, two twos, two threes, two fours, and two sevens, as well as all of our <laughs> own picks in the draft that, you know, was about to happen. Uh, and, you know, had five quarterbacks in it uh, that were at least worthy of uh, evaluating for first round picks. So, you know, we were setting a stage before Sashi came around and kind of did the same thing a second time. Mm-hmm. 
unfortunately, the assets that we created uh, weren't you know used as effectively as they could. In fact, a number of them were put into trade, so they actually ended up with only six draft picks in a draft in which we had accumulated 12 draft picks, including two ones and two twos. Uh, where Sasha understood the value, but then they they didn't uh, execute some of the personnel decisions as well. But they went, really went back to the same philosophy. And now, you know, Dorsey's come in, and you know, time will tell. He certainly elevated the talent of the team dramatically by using those resources. You know, he's done it in a way that would scare some people, and actually, the way that got him in trouble in Kansas City, which is uh, completely ignoring uh, anything other than talent. And that hasn't always been a formula for true success. It's been a formula for improvement, but it hasn't always been a formula for true success. So, so what, do you, what do you mean by that? Ignoring completely ignoring anything but talent. What does that include? What is he ignoring? Yeah, well, so I mean, he's he's brought in players that uh, range from being, uh, you know, guys that have gotten in a lot of trouble. I mean, Kareem Hunt is suspended for eight games right now. Uh, to some guys, it is very high maintenance. You know. You hear a lot of conversation about Bill Beckham. He is not a bad guy. The reports that make him seem like a bad guy are erroneous. But he is a high-maintenance guy. Mm-hmm. So most successful franchises with a clear philosophy about the type of players they want have always limited, not eliminated, but limited the number of players that are either high-maintenance or you wake up in the morning hoping you're not going to read about them in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And John in Kansas City, and frankly it's the reason he's not there, or at least a big contributor, uh, because that's really not how Andy Reid's mind and philosophy of building a team works. Uh, and now again in Cleveland has uh, has um, taken the, the, you know, talent is more important than anything, which is absolutely true, to talent is really the only thing to a degree that will be interesting to watch and see if he's got the kind of leadership on the coaching staff and leadership on the team mm-hmm. that can take something that I would have been and many of the people that have been participated in building some really successful teams aren't afraid to do. Uh, so it'll be an interesting test to see if taking this to the degree that he's taken is something. They'll be better. They're already way better. And he has added a tremendous amount of talent, so this is not meant to take a shot at him. I think what he's done with the resources he had is extremely impressive. But he's also done it in a way that most people who have tried to build long-term sustainable success have been afraid to will now get to test whether that's was we were right to be afraid of that, or he is right to put be less worried about it? Mm-hmm. We're talking to Joe Banner. Joe is a former NFL exec. He was president of the Philadelphia Eagles for a long run, and then he was the first CEO of the Cleveland Browns when Jimmy Haslam bought that organization. He's been talking about John Dorsey recently here on the Browns and his move since he's taken over as general manager there. We're talking about talent on the field. It's interesting to ask also about talent. In the front office, why, why is it you think that we have such a mix, such a range of talent when it comes to the NFL? Is would you expect there to be more talent in the front offices? Yeah, it's really kind of crazy. You've got something that almost uh, <laughs> any male I know would love to do, right? And, and many female and many women. Yes, and, and and an increasing number of women, and you actually have a dearth of really talented people. Um, you know, I remember many years ago, Bill Walsh was doing an interview, and he was in the midst of the decade in which I think they won either three or four Super Bowls, went to like six championship games. And he was asked in a league that's designed to keep everybody kind of close and keep everybody competitive, how do you explain that you've had such <laughs> tremendous success over such a short period of time? 
I mean, his answer, which of course was quite arrogant, but had some truth in it, was there's only six teams in the league that are smart enough that I consider them competition. <laughs> you know, the most amazing thing about that, Joe, is what's the number now? You know, yeah, how this is eight. thirty. This is thirty years later, and the number's yeah, barely different now. Right, we may be up to eight. Uh, listen, everything, unfortunately, and, and you guys are way more expertise than I am on this stuff. Uh, conventional wisdom is a powerful force uh, and very hard to overcome. But people don't appreciate the degree to which the NFL is driven by conventional wisdom. The slightest non-traditional thinking, the slightest threat to kind of those that have survived and then fed the next generation of survivors in the league mm-hmm. um, is is just so overwhelming. And and listen, this is part of everything we do, and to the to the detriment of of most people who take it to too much of a degree. It would be difficult to exaggerate just how powerful a force this is in the NFL, whether it relates to hiring. I mean, people like myself and Howie Roseman that, you know, do not come from what's thought of as a traditional background. People forget that guys like George Young and Brian Billick, and I mean, these guys started in uh, PR. Mm. Somehow, you know, being referred to in the NFL as not a football guy, which is almost a random thing. Um, (laughs) Just is so limiting to the impact you can have. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we hear the term uh, good old boys club. I mean, the NFL is an extreme version of this. Uh, and the few owners, like a Jeff Lurie, that are able to kind of see past it and see talent and be open-minded about who may be able to help build success. And not just with people like Howie and I. We hired Andy Reid when he'd never been a coordinator. People thought we were crazy. We were accused of hiring Andy Reid because he would come cheap since he had never been a coordinator. Ah, okay. Joe, this is, a, this is Adi Weiner. I'm listening very intensely to what you're saying and, and really fascinating, but I'm wondering why is it that baseball was able to break this down? I don't think they're any worse in terms of conservatism and these baseball men and, exe- and all the things that you're describing. And I think even basketball has managed to make you know, significant changes in the way they manage. What is it that makes football so backwards? Well, you got a... the. The culture of the people in football, and I'm going to be at risk of being somewhat stereotypical here, but I'm, I'm making a generalization. Um, you know, fo- football is made up of people that are generally, um, uh, especially if we turn the clocks back to when this got entrenched, um, it was very suburban, almost rural. I mean, your Oklahomas, your Ohios, your Texases, your parts of Florida where most of your people are coming from. It's, it's a very, very conservative historical culture. It's even politically conservative. I mean, you hear NBA coaches speak out on politics. It tends to be a much more liberal perspective than when you hear an NFL coach uh, speak out. So, Are you making like a, like a red-blue kind of like urban kind of rural sort of argument and that, that I, affects I the traditions? Little, and... I am a little bit. I don't think that's the full explanation, but I think it's an element uh, of it. And uh, uh, ownership, which is crucial in the NFL, um, isn't always differentiating. In other words, you hire a general manager, head coach, the ownership is basically uninvolved in the hires than done by those groups of people, which tend to be the people that they knew or the people that have the same philosophy they do or came off of the same tree. Uh, Hard for me to speak to baseball, but I think that's at least somewhat different in basketball, it's just uh, more progressive uh, thinking. I also think that people in the analytics world saw basketball as a place they could more easily demonstrate 
the impact of the studies that they were doing. Whereas football, because it's more complicated and more of a team sport, um, had less open-minded people and had a little harder case to prove the difference that they could make. And frankly, some of the things that started in football as just the very, very beginnings of people speaking up, like, you know, how much better it was to go for it more often on fourth down. Um, they weren't passing the smell test with some of these very traditional people that are very oriented towards self-preservation uh, and therefore very costly for them to try. Remember a few years ago when the Patriots were paying the Colts, and I think Bill Belichick has established himself as the best coach in the history of the NFL, and he went for it on like fourth and two at his own 30-yard line, and even with his track record when it didn't work, right. I mean, he got decimated. So if you're looking at a coach that's uh, somewhat motivated or fully motivated by self-preservation, convincing them to take those kind of chances is extremely difficult. Now, you and I may not think of them as chances, but that's how they think of them. Well, this is one of the reasons you need luck to go your way, essentially, you know, because you need these high-profile cases like Doug Peterson going for it, you know, in these short yardage situations in the Super Bowl, and he actually gets it, and all of a sudden, because it's a copycat league, other teams become a little bit more interested. Listen, Joe, we know you're a great observer of the game of football and, and kind of the kind of the bigger macro trends. What do you see coming up with the CBA next time around? We're we're you know, this is always eventful, unfortunately, and there have been important changes, the introduction of technology, privacy of information. What's been happening with the franchise tag lately? Franchise tag, exactly. Um so curious your your expectations for the next round with the CBA, the collective bargaining agreement. Well, as somebody at this point who's a fan, I'm hoping that it goes easy and we don't have to read a ton about it and certainly don't miss any games. Um, the answer to this question, I think, depends upon something that shouldn't be a question but is. Um, I was lucky enough to be part of the last negotiations. Uh, there were only two representative teams that were actually included on the league side and, and be in the negotiations. Um, I think the league got a very, very good deal. Um, and I think the uh, players in the union don't fully appreciate the degree of that. Hmm. So if the players are going into this negotiation thinking that they didn't get what they should have, but it was the deal was okay, I'm actually hopeful we'll get uh, a new deal or an extension without a whole bunch of hassle. Uh, on the other hand, if they recognize that they really left a lot of room on the table, um, and they really try to take back a bunch of real estate, we're going to have a, a major, major battle. Joe, can you um, give us an example of what you mean by something they left on the table or what real estate looks like in these negotiations? Yeah, I mean, this is a, you know, a little inside the beltway, but you've got a sophisticated audience. I mean, the players negotiate a percentage of revenue, which is really what drives the cap and how much the players make. Um, you know, they gave up a lot versus the previous deal in terms of the percentage they're not getting. What's more easily attainable was, and you read a little bit about this, but not much, the teams only have to spend a minimum based on an average of what they spend over a four-year period of time, and the percentage is 89%. Mm-hmm. So you can actually spend 11% under the cap on average over four years. Think about that. The cap's almost $200 million. So you can not spend... $22 million per year per team with permission from the CBA. Mm-hmm. So multiply $22 million by 32 teams by, by a 10-year deal. It's billions of dollars. Right, right. So if the union had just done the same deal, 
and I think there was reason to believe they could have done somewhat better, but negotiated different terms on how the money had to be spent, and what percentage it had spent, and how frequently it needed to be reconciled, uh, the players would have received a significantly larger piece of the pie than they ended up receiving. That's amazing. Uh, that's a big. That's a big piece as well, Joe. We're gonna. We, we'd love to hear more from you on that negotiation. Hopefully, we it doesn't turn into a big deal, but it might, and it would be a great topic to have you back on. We're out of time this time around, but we hope it's just the first of a number of conversations. And again, if you do find yourself back in Philadelphia on a Wednesday, let us know. But we we very much appreciate your taking some time to be with us this morning calling in from Florida. My pleasure. Enjoyed it, guys. Take it easy. Absolutely. That was Joe Banner, longtime NFL executive. He was president of the Philadelphia Eagles here, helping Jeff Lurie get started when he first bought the team. And my boss. And his boss, Eric Bradley. He ran Bradley as a contractor for five years. And then, of course, um, and then of course, Joe ran over and helped Jimmy Haslam when he bought the Browns get off the ground. And he's a great follow. You can pick him up at Joe Banner 13 if you're interested in Twitter. He's, a, he's an excellent observer of all the dynamics in the NFL. That is the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, Eric Bradlow. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can join us. You can be here, too. Give us a ring. one 844 wharton 1-844-942-7866. We will take your phone calls. It's not that hard to get on. one 844 wharton Email us, businessradio at SiriusXM, businessradio at SiriusXM. We'll even take those live. And, of course, hit us up on Twitter. At WMoneyBall is the handle there. You can reach out and give us suggestions, give us over-under ideas, give us complaints, whatever you got. We're just off the phone with Joe Banner, longtime NFL exec, helped create Jeff Lurie's Philadelphia Eagles, and then helped Jimmy Haslam get off the ground over in Cleveland. Fun conversation. We'll get Joe back on here. At some point in the next half hour, longtime friend of the show, deeply admired sports analyst, Dean Oliver. Dean, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning, sir. Good to hear your voice. Good to hear you, man. Where are you calling in from? Connecticut. Connecticut. Of oh, yeah. All right. So Dean's at home. Dean is the vice president of True Media Networks. He was objectively, undoubtedly, one of the pioneers of advanced stats, especially in basketball, basketball on paper was his fundamental book. He made big contributions in other sports as well, including one of our favorites, the the sports analytics group inside ESPN and the football power index. ESPN's FPI is one of the very best uh, sources for a crisp power number in football, especially college um, or pro. But FPI, Dean was in, in on the ground floor of FPI, and they've used that as a, as a, as a template for – their work in other sports now. So, Dean, we're always happy to talk with you. You, of course, best known for basketball, and this is an interesting time of year. In basketball, the playoffs are all but set with one game left, a few slots, a few slots, like a 4-5 here or there, 8-9 here or there. Eric's dying to get into it. Yeah, Dean, i got to ask you a this. question here. This is Eric Bradlow. So I think one of the biggest games in the NBA, may go under the radar last night, was the Houston Rockets 
losing to the Thunder. Um, as you know, assuming uh, assuming there's a outcome tonight that's expected, which is Denver winning, Houston's going to slide from the two seed to the four seed, which means number one, they don't get home court in the second round. Number two, they have to play Golden State in the second round. What did you think? I think of all the things that I've been predicting Houston beating Golden State this year, but I'm not convinced in the second round without, you know, they were never going to get home court. How big was that Houston loss to the Thunder last night? Do we still have you, Dean? We may have lost our buddy Dean Oliver. Our guest slipped away. Connecticut phone lines, not what they used to be. We'll get him back. Matty Dats well, is on the job. I was just pointing out that, you know, Houston had potentially, had, matter of fact, they had the two seed. If they won and Denver lost, now Denver did lose, if Houston won, they were locked into the two seed, which means, number one, easier first round, yeah, home court in the second round, and potentially not having to play Golden State until the conference finals. No, so With that I, loss, assuming Denver wins at home tonight against, I think it's Sacramento, Denver's the two. Portland's but, 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 the three, you, and you, Houston's the you four. You said you had Houston beat in Golden State. I do. but So in, in your mind, that presumably was going to happen in the conference finals. Now, Prior to this result, why, 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 do you, why do you change that, that kind of outlook or that prediction, given that they maybe meet now around earlier? It's good. That's, I knew you would ask me that question, <laughs> and therefore it's a good question. I think, just like you saw last night, Steph Curry came out of the game, a little bit injured. I actually think Golden State is a team with a lot of mileage on it. I'd rather play them farther along in the playoffs to, than to early put, on. To put more mileage, yeah. to to put put more more mileage. mileage on it. Also, or, or I'm not you, as... You know, you're, you're banking almost on an injury or something like that, some kind of weakness but, yeah, to but, pop up. But Harden isn't exactly a low-mileage guy, and Harden's going to play a lot of minutes over the next few rounds as well. Well, that's, that's the argument for saying to get... Yeah, but you know, you could also make an argument that, you know... Golden State is now going to have to play. Let's say Golden State has to play Portland. I mean, Houston's going to have to, maybe not even going to get to Golden State now. Now Houston's yeah. going to be the road team, possibly. Well, they're going to be the road team, possibly, against Golden State. But, I mean, I just think it's a much tougher road so being let, the four seed. I, that's why I wanted I, yeah. to get Dean's thoughts. It, is, it, let's, is, let's it in, is. Let's check in with Dean. Dean's back, I believe. Dean, Dean we got you now? Oh, yeah. Can Did, you hear me? So we got you now. Yeah, Eric. Eric is Eric's observing that this was a big loss by the Rockets, taking them possibly from the two seed to the four seed. Did you code that as a big loss? I think there are big implications for the Western playoffs that way. Uh, yes and no. I, I do think it. I think the Rockets inherently are about the highest variance team that's that's sitting here in the playoffs. This is a team that I, I think can lose in the first round. You guys are talking about them in the second round. I, I think they can lose in the first round, but I think they can also win the championship. I think they they are not uh, necessarily as talented after after Harden and, and Chris Paul is, is aging um, as a lot of other teams. Uh, Harden is just that amazing, but what happens in the playoffs is a smart team like Utah, if they end up falling and playing Utah in the first round, Utah is smart. They know how to defend a lot of things, and they have a reasonable chance of upsetting Houston. Well, let me just say, Dean, just as I'm sure you know, this is what I was talking about. Assuming Denver wins tonight, Houston's the four. They're playing Utah. Utah's locked into the five. Houston slipped with Houston's loss last night. They slipped from the two to the four if Denver wins tonight. So that means Houston's going to play Utah in the first round. 
Uh, yeah, and I would uh, not exactly be thrilled about playing Utah. So uh, they are they are a very smart team. They very knocked good. off the Thunder last year, as you know. Um, what 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 advantage does Maury have now with the Rockets? I mean, where do you, where do you see them privileged because they are one of the more analytically savvy? They've led the revolution, but there's been a lot of catching up in recent years. Uh, yeah, without a doubt, there are um, a fair number of smart teams. Uh, the good thing is. Adopting analytics early gives you an advantage that lasts for a long time. Um, a lot of the teams that are successful now are ones that adopted analytics early. Why is and that, I Dean? Think, uh, for instance, that's why they were able to get to James Harden. Uh, I mean, they they realized early how valuable he was in the way that he played and how good he was at those things. And so they have his rights. They have him for a long time. But mm. uh, also, from a more general perspective, if you're the, the team that's digging into player tracking data in 2013 as opposed to 2015 or 2016 or 2017, which some teams were still figuring out, you have all these years of, of asking the right questions and asking the wrong questions, getting to the right right uh, before everyone else. So that's something we're going to want to hear a little bit more from you about later because we know you're involved in that part of the business. But it's an interesting point that, that some of the advantages – accumulate over time and so the early movers may may contain an advantage may may generate an advantage that lasts even when others get into the game so for example we sat with the eagles a couple weeks ago we had some students down there talking to them we asked them you know how is it that they're the best in the league by most measures on being most analytical on game day to get in-game decisions and they said look that's a product of decisions we made in 2010 this is like an eight, nine, ten-year process. It's really just kind of humbling that way. Listen, uh, we've, Dean, we've got a phone call from up your way. We've got Matt from Connecticut. Matt, welcome to the show. What's going on? How's it going, guys? Good, good, good. I uh, enjoy both your work. I was just calling because I wanted, considering Dean's been in the NBA, I was wondering his perspective on whether teams, when they get in the postseason, tend to employ analytics differently, whether they're more hesitant or they embrace them more because the nature of the game kind of shifts. It's a great question. Matt from Connecticut, appreciate that question. Very curious to hear Dean's, Dean's thoughts on it. So how, how does it shift? Do you, do you think teams use analytics? By the way, we should mention that Dean has worked with teams in the NBA. He's been in, inside the building with multiple teams now. So how, how does it vary when we hit the postseason? Uh, in the postseason, the, the players are frankly much smarter at this point because they are playing the same opponents uh, okay. night after night. Okay. So they can absorb more. So, yes, analytically, you need to be even more ahead than you were in the regular season. In the regular season, they just you can give them 20 pages, but they're going to absorb the first three lines. I because see. Because they're in a different hotel every night and things like that. This uh, In the playoffs, you are preparing for that first game intensely, especially if you're a road team, you want to steal that one. Um, and you, you can dig in, and everybody is focused in on that one team. They're not thinking about going home after some long road trip. Um, and then probably the toughest thing is adjustments. And I don't know how good teams are in understanding adjustments. Uh, the analytical approach to evaluating adjustments, I don't know if that's all that different than what she, what a coach would do by watching tape. Okay. You know, this raises a question I've been curious about. Does the, does the fact that you're playing the, the same team four to seven times in a row – does that increase a coaching advantage that might exist, or does it decrease a coach? Is it would, it would a really good coach going against an average coach 
want multiple games to really be able to soak up you know information and, and, and plan accordingly? Or does he want one game where he already has all that he needs and the other guys that hadn't had a chance to catch up? I think it accentuates talent first and then coaching second. So the players end up being able to coach themselves a little bit better because yeah. you have all these games against yeah. the same opponents. Yeah. And, but on the other hand, if the talent is kind of even, then it does accentuate the advantage of a coach Got and it. understanding how to make those adjustments. Dean, this is Adi Weiner. I, I love this conversation, but I'm very curious about the almost the nitty-gritty. What exactly do you tell a player um, before a game or after the second or third or fourth game that they actually absorb and use? Uh, so certainly, they already have some ideas. So the conversation is already down the road with them, um, as opposed to most things in the regular season. The things that you are trying to give them are, okay, we tried, we tried this, we tried, we, we tried hedging, we tried going under, for instance, on a pick and roll. Um, the and they, the players can then interact. They can say, I think when he's going over the screen, for instance, and he's using his left hand. He's going to want to go way over the screen, and that gives us a little bit more time. So your interactions with them are, okay, I actually then see that in the stat. They can give you something you can look for as well in the player testing data or in uh, stats themselves. So it it ends up being a productive conversation as opposed to just a one-way feed. Dean, we think of the NBA as being a place where – Analytics has really jumped forward in the last few years, and many teams are using it. When you look across the league, are there some teams that you think stand out as being more advanced and more capable of having these conversations, better able to work through the advantages they might be able to generate in a four-game series, five-game series? Or is it that you know the top teams all kind of roughly have equal capabilities at this point? Uh, it's harder, harder to know because even if I know some of the, the people at the different organizations doing it, they're not going to tell me exactly how those interactions change when we get to the playoffs. Yep. Uh, certainly having analytical coaches, uh, I think, is a, is, a, is a very big benefit um, when they're comfortable with it. And I think a significant fraction now are pretty comfortable with a set of things, whether they're comfortable with thinking outside of that set when you get to the playoffs. I think that's a smaller group, yep. and that would enable uh, certain advantages in class. That's interesting that there might be the, the playoffs. Some coaches will tighten up and go more with what they know and more traditional, while other coaches might want to be more resourceful and go with something new. So, Dean, this is Eric Brothel again. I'm just looking at some stats here, and I just noticed something which you pointed out, but maybe more informally. I didn't realize that both, number one, you, the Utah Jazz were the second best team in the West in terms of point differential, and they're also the best defensive team in the West. So do you think, Do you think? let's play it out, you said maybe they can beat Houston. Can maybe they beat Golden State? Uh, yes, I think it's harder to beat Golden State. Uh, I don't necessarily think, uh, I heard you guys talking a little bit about um, kind of some wear and tear. On, on the Warriors as they get you know, through the playoffs. I, I think they they also have this, they're coming off a season where they didn't play as hard, obviously, as they did in the last few years. And uh, whether they have it all together even to start the playoffs is, is going to be interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I think the dynamic of the wear and tear is, is legit, but I also think that they, they've gotten used to dogging it a bit. 
<laughs> it's interesting, right? Uh, there's so, a there's a real trade off there, right? Because teams want to rest up their stars to some extent, but you can't you can't just expect to throw it a couple gears forward at the start of the playoffs. It's a real interesting thing to try to balance. Yeah, uh, I don't think there are any kind of lock uh, this year. Wow, wow, wow. Despite well, Dean, let's talk about who my challenge from the East, and it's a, it's such an interesting race over here on this side of things. So Milwaukee has stepped out to the number one seed. Um, Toronto's been good for a couple of years now. The Sixers have really been coming. Um, and then the Celtics have looked a little bit dicey, but you know they sure did look good in the playoffs last year. So how would you handicap the the East? Who, who do you think is going to come out of there? And what do analytics tell us about who might come out of there? Well, as I say, you get to the playoffs, you, you got to really look at a lot of the talent that sits on the rosters. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think... Uh, a little bit understated is that Sixer team where they have a ton of high-level talent. I mean, between Embiid and Simmons and Butler and Harris, that is very high-level mm-hmm. talent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people may be sleeping on those guys' ability to to step it up. You know, there there are some potential chemistry issues there with some of what they put together, but the talent is is definitely there. I, I, in terms of talent, they, I think they probably have the best talent in the East. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Giannis and Kawhi on the other two teams are, are great. And, and the supporting cast around Milwaukee, the way Milwaukee has been constructed this year, using good players around Giannis, but using them in a little bit different way. What's, a, uh, what's an example there, Dean? I think Brooke Lopez is a, is a great example of a guy that um, – they put him in the three-point shooter role, who also has transition defense responsibility. I don't know if people realize that the Bucks have the best transition defense in basketball, and it's not by a little bit. Usually, if you have the best transition defense, eh, it adds maybe a, a point a game mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. They're adding multiple points a game. I think roughly three or four points a game over average wow. from their transition defense. Okay, so a lot of that is Lopez. Because if the other team gets a guard out and they're staring at Lopez near the basket, now they go, maybe I should pull up for a mid-range, and that's not an optimal thing. Right, right, right. Interesting. All right, what 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 do you make of the Celtics, for example? So they've talked about chemistry issues. I mean, they've yeah. they've tried they've had too, they've had too many good players to sort, right? Yeah, there's there's something strange going on uh, with the the personalities there, and uh, I have done studies historically that that look at the impact of motivation on on players in the NBA, and uh, however it translates, this chemistry does seem to turn into motivation problems. Last year they had the golden run, the uh, the a beautiful playoff run yeah, right. that just put a lot of pressure on them for this year, and I think. Uh, I, I think things will come together a little bit better for them in the playoffs, but I don't think it's magical like it was last year. Uh-huh. Um, there is, there's like clicks or something that show up statistically. Is that Harry right? Irving and Marcus Morris, those guys play well together. The other guys, not necessarily with those two guys. And so, Dean, real quickly, when you say clicks show up statistically, do you mean in kind of a plus-minus way when they're on the court together, the outcome is good? Are or you mean, talking like an interaction term yeah. on plus-minus, basically? Or are you talking more to process level with like player tracking data? They literally help each other more, and they use they pass to each other more, that kind of thing. 
Uh, mostly all of the above. I don't necessarily have all the player tracking data to support it, but uh, visibly it looks like some of the players, how they work together uh, certainly there. But statistically, yes, the individual numbers, the team numbers, some el- measurement of how well they fit. Um, there are questions about how well Kyrie and Marcus Morris fit together with the other guys, mm-hmm. uh, whereas those two, those two guys seem to complement each other. Last year in the playoffs, almost every player on that team played better than they did during the regular season, except for Marcus Morris, who mm-hmm. didn't have Kyrie. And the same pattern shows up this year, where if Marcus Morris is on the court with Kyrie, he plays well. If Kyrie's off, he doesn't. Wow. Other guys have different trends. Yeah, and that's interesting. And it gives you it's just an example of the potential for good uh, good performance measures and good analytics. Listen, Dean, how do you how do you watch basketball differently because of your background and training? I mean, this thing we were just talking about. I mean, you're, you're, you said yes to the naked eye, but also in the stats. If how do you think you watch it differently than than the average player and than the average fan? And moreover, like if I were to sit with you, I have this experience sometimes when I watch NBA now. You know, grew up playing basketball, but kind of didn't pay that much attention for a while. Now I come back to it. I'm, now I'm this mix of old basketball knowledge and new analytics knowledge. And I would benefit from sitting next to you or somebody else who's really knows the game. And you kind of tell me how to watch the game. Like, what am I, what should I be looking for? What, what are the, what really tells me which team is generating an advantage? Or not? I feel like I, I can do this in football, but maybe not as well in basketball. Uh, I don't know if people like watching games with me. <laughs> I watch it very much from a defensive perspective. I look at what the defense is doing. Okay. I will never look at the ball. Um, I do try to bring both, uh, and it depends a little bit on the game. I will look at it from my traditional perspective where I grew up playing and coaching um, before I was doing everything analytical. And then there are games where I look at it very analytically. Ideally, if I'm working for a team, I'm bringing both to a playoff series, but I do. Um, I I like knowing in advance what tendencies and what the team should do, yeah, um, and then looking for whether they're doing it. Um, let's, let's give give an example. So you and I look playoffs go to chalk, and now we got the Bucks Celtics second round series, and you and I are sitting there in the garden, and you're trying to coach me into being a better observer of what's going on on the court. What are you going to tell me? I'm certainly going to be digging up what are the tendencies for how you beat Milwaukee, for instance. Okay. Milwaukee, I believe uh, there, that there is some um, tendency, and, and this is one I haven't studied yet in, in detail. I, I believe you want to take away their shooters before you take away Giannis. So if you're okay. going, if if you have to do it, how do you do? How do you take away the shooters and take away Giannis as much as possible? And then you build a plan, probably that is more an outside in defensive approach to taking away mm-hmm. that team. Mm-hmm. Um, and then see whether they're implementing it. Are they doing something along those lines? Or are they focused on double-teaming Giannis and coming up with strange perimeter rotation? So real quickly, Dean, one of the things you're emphasizing is basically scheme as opposed to execution. I mean, are you able to tell whether, well, you know, maybe Stevens decides to take a different approach and, or maybe Stevens wants that but his players aren't doing it as well? Are you able to parse that? Uh, to some degree, you can, because you can see uh, some intention. You can see when there's hesitation. You can see when they have no intention of doing it. 
Um, and then there, there's other situations where it's just hard to tell because uh, maybe Milwaukee executed so well they forced uh, Boston to really question. They were they really had the floor so spread, or someone just what can blow up a game plan sometimes is if someone you hadn't planned on having to deal with comes out and makes their first three shots. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and then the players may react a little bit too quickly. Yeah, to that's that's what I was about to ask. Hand. Right, they they overreact, right? So anybody could come out and bury three shots in a row by chance, right? And you basically don't want to alter your defensive strategy because of that, but it's human nature too, right? So teams, the players are going to have to, the players are going to have to fight that that bias. Yes, especially if it is if it's if it's a bias in if it's a just a hot hand from result and not hot hand from a process from scheme right 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 got it yeah uh, and sometimes a guy comes out and yeah we gave him three wide open shots because that was part of the game plan and he buried all three of them He's like oh okay but if <laughs> he buried three and we were covering him like reasonably then I'm like okay that's a little bit of luck and we don't want to back back yeah. off yeah Dean this is Eric Bradley what's actually interesting is um so you brought up guarding potentially the Bucks outside in. I'm just looking. They're actually middle of the road in three-point percentage. They're actually 13th in the NBA in three-point percentage. Shockingly, actually, I was very unaware. If I had gave you guys a guess of who's the best three-point shooting team in the NBA, maybe Dean knows the answer, I could give you five guesses and you wouldn't get it. It's the San Antonio Spurs are the best three-point shooting team in the NBA. But what's also interesting, Dean, I'd love your thoughts on this, they actually take very few of them. So do you think there's an opportunity, like, well, you could argue they only take good ones, which is why they're the best. Yeah, they may not be or as good they sh- if they took more. Well, that's, so that's what I was going to ask you, Dean. When you're analyzing that situation, how do you think about that? Like, so maybe the Spurs are the best because they take by far the fewest. If they took more, they wouldn't make more. Uh, yeah, that uh, that is definitely the case. Um, there is a trade-off between efficiency and volume. Um, on a general basis, and at specific levels, like three-point shots. And when you are preparing for a team, whether it's San Antonio or Milwaukee, uh, you are preparing for the threat level, which is a combination of volume and efficiency. Yeah, and the Bucks are the second most taking, by the way. Not surprisingly, the Houston Rockets mm-hmm. take the most in the NBA. But by the way, middle of the pack in terms of making them, Houston, the Bucks are the sec take the second most in the NBA, mm-hmm. and you definitely prepare for the three, each of those teams' three point shots. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the efficiency of it uh, comparing to other teams. You, you can it's probably best. I mean, in a simplified form, just to look at how many points they're getting from three point shots. Right, uh, that's probably a better representation of threat right. than percentage. Dean, this is uh, Shane uh, Jensen. Your previous comments about uh, kind of over- player overreactions to a hot hand shooter and, and, and those types of situations made me kind of think, I've always wondered about, you know, when teams take a timeout, when coaches take a timeout after their team has been, kind of, after there's been a strong run against their team in a game, what component... What portion of that timeout is, is is typically devoted to some, like, an alteration of scheme versus just kind of psychologically trying to calm the players or, or, or reorient them if they kind of have overreacted to a particular hot hand? It uh, depends on the group of players you've got um, and how well they, they respond. I, I think um, sometimes, because there's so many reasons you can take that time, sometimes it's okay, we've got the wrong guys, and we need to just take this time out to get the right guys in to match up against what they're doing. 
um, that you can approach as a tactical uh, thing as well. Sometimes it is, uh, all right, guys, this, it is a psychological thing. Yeah, they hit a few good shots, but I wanted to stop it and just make sure we're all on the same page. Mm-hmm. It really depends on the group of guys and to some degree the coach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Listen, Dean, we, we know that you are also vice president of data at True Media. And so beyond being a straight-up basketball expert, you are at the forefront of motion tracking data across sports, including football. So can you give us a little sense here in just the last couple of minutes where that sport is in using motion tracking data? It's only recently been made available to all teams for all players. And I imagine there's great differences across the 32 teams on how they're taking up these new data. So you said, look, if you're an early adopter, you tend to generate an advantage that persists for years because you get to the right questions more quickly. What are you seeing in the NFL? You're out, you're, li- you're literally on the front lines selling these new products to organizations. What are you seeing on the way NFL is reacting to motion tracking data? Uh, it's cautious. Uh, it is, I think the NFL has had a lot of people looking at video for a long time. They can study a lot of things, and I think they are cautious to use it uh, right away. There are some teams that are more aggressive in studying it and getting to know it, asking some of those wrong questions before they get to the right question. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, I, I think it's fair to say they're roughly 10 years behind the NBA in mm-hmm. terms of doing this. So the teams that were heavily involved in, in things 10 years ago in the NBA and are having a lot of success now, I think those teams in the NFL that are, are learning how to use some of this, uh, they are building themselves a nice future. But it is, it's probably, it's probably about 10 teams that are looking at it pretty aggressively. A lot of, everyone's looking at it, mm-hmm. but it, it's, a, it's a degree to how much. To what extent do you think it's going to revolutionize, you know, even just st- the statistics we talk about and value in the NFL, like 10 years from now? What, how, five years from now, let's pull a little forward. Five years from now, how different, how differently will, what, how different will the statistics we base our evaluations of players be, or of teams be, because of motion tracking? Uh, in football, it will be huge. Uh, it will be dramatically different. I think, uh, in contrast to basketball, I think we still, in many ways, evaluate players fairly similarly because the player tracking is a modifier. It's a useful modifier. Um, and it can change the value of some players a fair amount. But in football, there are just positions that we've never measured very well at all. Uh, offensive line, defensive backs, a lot of defensive backs which just never get thrown at. Mm-hmm. Um, linebackers who have responsibilities both for, um, say, pass rush and in the secondary, and how well they're doing those things. What does it mean to be sitting in zone coverage and doing a good job? Right. Uh, we will start to be able to measure what that means. And uh, whether that's five years or ten years down the road, I think we will get a much clearer picture for some of these undervalued linebackers and offensive linemen and, and defensive backs um, that we've never had before. How often do you think what we find will affirm the conventional wisdom versus to overturn it. So, you know, some, so I'm sure that you'll find some stats, some, some way of evaluating a linebacker that's going to actually comport with what the defensive coordinator has been saying at some teams for years. It's just now that there's a, now there's objective measurement of it. In other cases, it's going to completely undermine it. So what, what's the relative, you know, ratio of those things? What is, what's your expectation? I'm going to make up a number um, because when you ask me, I know it's absurd. 
I, I was thinking 80-20. 80% of the time you can confirm what a lot of people are is conventional. Are you are you is that an homage to Bill James? Didn't he didn't he say have some 80-20 quote about a good stat in sports analytics? If he did, it either became so subconscious. Uh, yeah, I, I mocked it, I, or uh, I, I honestly don't know where that. Okay, so even this is higher, higher... 20% is still pretty large for an unconventional sort of... You, you, you react that my, that, you that's, react that was my reaction to that. All right. It's, 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 not, it's, it's, um, it's, it's regressing. It's regressive for me, which is helpful if that's, if that's true, because I tend to think, okay, here's this completely new technology. As you say, you know, directed at a sport that's really hard to analyze and into positions where we've never actually had any objective data. And you're saying even that... You're only going to really generate probably 20%. You're only going to undermine 20% of the time. And, and 80%, you're going to confirm what people have known. I, I think we have enough people who've done pretty smart, subjective um, evaluation. And I think a lot okay. of us just kind of listen to that. When, like, How often are you going to sit there and, and look and study an offensive lineman versus listen to what the guy on TV says about him being great and been in a couple Pro Bowls? Mm-hmm. And I think then we form what we think are our opinions. Um, based upon just listening to that as opposed to studying what they what they do. And so I think fans, we we listen to what other people are saying, but I, I think a lot of those are, are pretty good um, because they're coming from people who know the game right. um, pretty right. well. All right. Well, interesting. Going to be a fun frontier to watch over the next few years. And, of course, the NBA playoffs will be a fun, fun arena to watch for the next couple of months dean oliver thank you for joining us this morning we always enjoy our time with you appreciate the work you do and wish you the best with it thank you guys absolutely dean oliver calling in from connecticut dean is vice president of data at true media networks he's the author of basketball on paper longtime analyst of basketball and other sports with espn and a number of nba teams that was dean oliver you can follow him at dino underscore lytics we've got a few topics left uncovered for example, NHL playoffs. We're going to hold off on discussing NHL playoffs until we get a little bit further down the road. But it's that season. It's that time of year. It's starting today, right? Yeah. Who is the favorite? Do we have a favorite? Well, it has to be the Lightning. Tampa they Bay. tied the so, matter of fact since last week when I did talk about it. Yeah. Adi and I talked about it quite yeah. a bit on the air. They're actually they tied the record for the most wins in a season, yeah. not points because they had more losses than I guess ties in the past. But they t- they had sixty two wins this yeah. year. No, so, I mean, it's going to be kind of a rule test because I always talk about the hockey uh, hockey playoffs as being very exciting because they are very unpredictable, certainly relative to NBA. But that's, you know, in, in part that's because there's not this kind of big talent dispersion. Like, like there aren't these kind of super teams in hockey. Or, or superstars that dominate? Like yeah, we yeah, have yeah, the best right. Role. I mean, it's a smaller, yeah. like, you know, there's more players involved in the game. So you can't you can't have this one or two, like, transcendent athletes completely dominating a series. That said, Tampa Bay is going to test that theory because they are the closest thing to a super team that we've seen kind of, yeah, since the The one thing the that did surprise me, I, I forget, what's the name of the trophy given to the person that scores the most points during the season? I just forget oh, it. Oh, the, the heart? The heart trophy, yeah, yeah, maybe? Yeah. I was surprised. Shane. Shane Jensen, woo, we got yeah, it. No, I was I surprised at how low a number it was. Mm. Like, I just, 
but maybe this isn't a low number historically. If I told you it was somewhere like I think it was like 124 points, does that sound like a high number or a low number, or me, or just about right to be the most scored in the league? I think that's. I, I don't think that's unreasonably. That doesn't sound off. Doesn't I mean, sound low. You, I, I miss Calbray. I grew up in the era of Gretzky, Gretzky yeah, scoring like over 200, 200, right, 200 points, points in a, in a season. season. So I mean, I, I'm I'm a little bit miscalibrated, but I, by modern standards, I don't think that that's unusual. Can I ask an unusual. ignorant question? How many how many games are there in a season? 80. 80, okay. So it's 1.5. It's 1.5. Yeah. What maybe surprised me is I think the person that led had something like 40-something goals and 70-something assists. Mm-hmm. I was just surprised. I mean, that's, that's a very good season, but didn't seem to be the, the maximum. I just thought it was low for the maximum point scored. Big story we expect going into the NHL, especially in contrast to the NBA, is upsets, essentially. It's just less predictable. So it's always a little bit more fun to watch. We had the Caps for years as the regular season champ and then not making it through. They finally broke yeah. that streak last year. But... Anyway, that's one of the fun things about the And NHL. I should correct. It's the Art Ross Trophy. I can't believe I messed that up. Not it, the Hart Trophy. And by the way, oh, we gave you props. I know. I, well, that's what, that's the only reason I bother with but, it. I, I don't usually try and correct myself. <laughs> Adi, 82 games, not 80. So it's the same number as basketball. Basketball. Right? Turns yeah. out to be the same. All right. Other quick topics. NFL draft. You know, this is a Kyler big, Murray big day looks like up. he's uh, the number weeks, one pick. Two weeks away. First round is two weeks from tomorrow. NFL teams are feverishly mm-hmm. getting ready. Murray, Murray drifted all the way up to the top of the board. Now the odds on favor. I've heard of. Uh, actually, I wanted to talk to you about this. I've I've heard kind of like various things about Haskins falling down the board. Like, how much is this like real versus these? This is kind of like psychological noise on the part of teams that want want these players. It's interesting. I I I do not believe that quarterbacks drift down in the first round. Quarterbacks don't drift down in the months yeah. leading up to in the months leading up to the to the draft. I mean, certain teams would up. kind of like other teams to know that think yeah. that these quarterbacks. Jump on. Quarterbacks too hot. Of, I mean, people are kind of reasonably. We, we had an over under on this, and I told. I mean, I I don't know if I was the only one that predicted that Kyler Murray would be. I think we had top five. He's definitely going in the top five. I think he's going number one. Well, well we had to revisit. We, uh, yeah, we, you may have what, missed it. Yeah, what do you mean you revisited, <laughs> revisited and, and uh, well, you guys got to change? <laughs> no, we had a different over under. Was he, whether you go number one? Actually, I think our, no, our, I must not have been here that yeah, week. Yeah. We definitely had no, another way. We're, 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 we're trying to incentivize attendance. By so, the way, I mean, just, if you miss out on by the way, you miss out. Shane, just to correct myself, so I'm looking now at the winners of the Art Ross Trophy. By the way, yeah, 128 points by Kucherov this year. By the way, yeah. is who the winner is. Is the most since in twenty four years since really? Mario Lemieux in ninety five ninety six or twenty three years scored one hundred and sixty one. So one hundred and twenty eight points is actually a lot. I guess I, I I guess I just assumed Crosby was doing that most. I mean, maybe I'm not factoring in like the time actually, he misses during due to injury and stuff like that. I, I'm a little. I am. I, I'm now surprised to hear that 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 is. I mean, I, it didn't seem unreasonably low, but it's it also doesn't sound shockingly high either, right, for the last 24 years. But, yeah, so 128 is the maximum yeah. since, again, again, Super Mario did it in the mid-90s, which that now that really surprises me. I am such me. a disappointing hockey analyst. I just don't there we know are. these basic things. Well, we are going to come back um, later in the playoff series to talk about NHL. Actually, it's but- not unrelated to the topic that, uh, you know, Adi, you and I talked about last week when we were talking about uh, marathon races, which is the distribution of the maximum or the minimum is a really interesting statistic to me. I've always been interested in how that both changes over time and how, you know, it's a way to good norm how historically great is a season or bad is a season. Well, counting statistics tend to tick up one at a time. Um, when you look at, at statistics like the, the time, that is a funny one because there's this, this sort of a maximum, you know, capacity li- limit as you approach. 
All right, we have a golf tournament kicking off tomorrow. Big, oh, yes. The, Gal- the golf. big one of the year and the first major of the year. And uh, it's always a sign of spring, Augusta, Georgia, Masters. We should give uh, Eric a chance uh, at a uh, pick at our over-under from last week. What was the over-under last week? I think week? it was whether Tyler, um, <laughs> Tiger Woods finishes in the top 10. I'm not 100% yeah. sure that was the actual pick. We all made it. That was it, and uh, Eric, you you missed that one, so it's not our our. No, actual... I ch- I chaired last. I was host last oh, you, week. Oh, no, so maybe Cade was uh, out. So C- Cade, yeah. you were out with that one. There, of course, you didn't get a chance to uh, to throw Woods one out. 10? Tiger went in the top ten. Uh, it's, it's it's intuitively compelling, right? It seems mm-hmm. obvious. He's number twelve in the world. He's always liked this course. Well, you know, He's playing reasonably well. I would have to say betting odds have him. Betting odds have even. him fourth right now. By the way, fourth favorite. Fourth favorite, but that has to I mean that's not odds. That's that's well, that's not. Doesn't that's say not odds of being he in the top ten. Doesn't say anything 10. about top ten. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, I kind of want to know what the intuition is and go the other way. But in this case, I'm going to go ahead and, and go with Tiger in the top. That's odd. It seems like it has to be against it. But you tell me, market is even. Can so you I'll, guess what Rufus would say? You could ask him. Well, yeah. he, what, here's something that Rufus would say. He'd say because you know, I assume he takes a little bit more of a like a little bit less of an emotional, more analytical approach to these things, just because because the money's a hundred percent analytical. Know. So here's what he would say about golf. So. You know, you, 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 you estimate player strength models, and there's a decay function, and you get yeah. real sophisticated at all of that. But then there's, there's course effects, and there are player course matches. And the biggest course effect in golf is Augusta. So, so if, if it, the, the diagnosticity of players' past performance is, mm. is higher for this tournament than any other tournament. And so leaning on that, I would say, well, you know, Tiger's done pretty well down there. So I would, I'm going to go ahead and go with top ten on Tiger with that. So what I thought was interesting – matter of fact, I'm not sure we've ever talked about this with regards to odds before on Morton Moneyball, is, well, which is relative odds. So I, I have all of you a question. So the betting odds right now – I'll give you one piece of data and then a question. Roy McIlroy is the favorite at 7-1. to one. So conditional on him being 7-1, to one, what do you think Tiger Woods is? So, for example, if you thought Tiger had roughly half the probability of McIlroy, you'd say 14 to 1. If you thought it was one-third, 21 to 1. If McIlroy is 7 to 1, what's Tiger Woods? Cause we, and I, by the way, I'm not sure, at least on my times on the show, I don't know we've ever talked about the ratio of odds or the relative odds mm-hmm. of player A to B. So, again, if McIlroy is 7 to 1, what do you think Tiger Woods is? Say he's probably about fifteen to one. Or so you think Roy McIlroy? The betting odds. Forget whether. Yeah. Let's imagine the betting odds are reflective of true probabilities. They're not, but let's imagine they were. You think McIlroy has twice the chance of winning the Masters as Tiger? I Woods? would have thought yeah. it'd be flatter than that. I mean, I'm looking at the actual numbers. So I know the answer, but I, it surprises me. I think that's you, the point I'm bringing up because no one player is that likely given yeah. given golf, and so I would have thought one and a half times. Right. What it is, is two times? It's it is fourteen two, so to it one. Is, okay. No, no. It's. A, I just. I don't. Find think, that, I think you're thinking Tiger's better than he is. Or at least I just think it's flat. I just think the odds are. Well, no, be kind I, we're of not flat. T- looking at the second best person. You're well, talking about Tiger. Well, he's the fourth best. So, yeah. so who's where's the second? Second is Johnson. So he's that's probably Johnson. So that's probably about eight or nine. No, ten, ten to one. Ten, ten to one. So okay. one and a half. But no, I, even just the following. I mean, you talk about success. As you guys may know, Roy McIlroy's never won the Masters. He one could argue he's choked at the Masters. He's led twice going into the back nine of the Masters. Do you believe that Roy McIlroy has six times the odds of winning the Masters as Phil Mickelson? Sounds like a lot. I would have thought yeah, four. Yeah, I mean, I would have thought four. Six times? <laughs> I mean, the we're going to have to draw these odds pretty yeah. f- 
quickly. The right? No, I'm just yeah, they do. You're also, you're, 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 I think the probability of Phil Mickelson winning is really small, and so it's not that hard to be six times bigger. Feels, Phil loves Augusta. Three-time well champion there. at the Masters? Yeah, but, and what, because there's so many people forever. in contention, the, 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 the distribution on these odds has okay. to kind oh, of be... So Shane, Shane's asking a good question. Shane's saying, how many guys could win this thing? Like and it's got to be like you know fifty well, or something like that, and you have to, and 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 so therefore you, you've got exactly those odds have to <laughs> well, drop if, off very quick. I mean, you could argue that Roy McIlroy flat to start, with. right? I mean, flat to start. Well, for I guess conditional on Roy McIlroy being seven no, to one, it I, has to drop. That was my question. Quickly, well, you know? Shane's, Shane's saying conditional on seven to one, they got to drop off. Yes, and, we, and well, I would say maybe seven to one is too high. Yeah, that's. That's maybe another. That's another thing when looking at the. Too low. He should be ten to one or twelve to one. What's interesting is we always ask that we do ask this question: How many players do you have to take if you use the betting odds to get to fifty percent? Yeah. And the answer right now this year, well, how many guys do you think it is? It's usually about six or seven in golf. That's exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. And you have so it's well. Let's play this as an over under. We're not going to start the over under yet, but you can have these seven golfers or the field, Roy McIlroy. (laughs) <laughs> Dustin Johnson, Justin Rose, Tiger Woods, John Rahm, Justin Thomas, and Jordan Spieth. My I'm the field, I'm usually the field guy, and, I, and that's just how I, I play. Yeah, I play so, field too. And I, and I played the field in the NCAA, <laughs> by the way, non-number one. Uh, losing that one, but out. winning the, my own pool with Virginia. Well, just, so which happened. one are you taking? You're taking those seven golfers? <laughs> I'm always taking. This is a smaller field this year. There's only 87 It's not an official over-under, by the way. A couple. But, all right, but there's so it's a lot smaller I have 80 than, golfers, let's say, and you have seven. Well, look, real quickly, this is one of the reasons we always see these unexpected winners at the PGA. They play a field that's twice as big as this. This is the smallest field in golf. Um, small spill in major golf. So, so that actually you, is a factor that changes things a bit. So what yeah, do you think? Sure. Ordinarily, I'd go with the field, but I, you, that, that last observation, this is a very small field, gives me hope that maybe the, uh, or the, what are you cutting out? You're cutting out the last, It's a you small know, it's but a, incredibly but, good field. Yeah, it's a very good field. I'm, I'm, I'm still going with the field, if I'm I going guess. Field too. I, yeah. think, I think those yeah. top picks are always over, overvalued, mm-hmm. essentially. That's the way psychology works. All right. Well, I'm going in this case. I'm going with the top seven. I like that it's, seven. It's hard not to like that seven. That's a My good God. seven. That's a great seven. But it doesn't have last year's champion in it. Okay. Question: Is that is that the official? Is that an official over under? That I don't think it was. Matt's but we're happy yes. to Matt's do it. Okay. On, yeah, okay. On the sheet. Okay. You know, I'm, I learned, I learned, I learned, Shane hasn't said whether he's taking it. I'm taking the seven field for Audi field for. The I'm seven. taking the field. I'm that's taking a, the field. We've got to make this official. That's a Game of Thrones reference. He said he's taking the seven. I don't even know what that means, but okay. Ward Moneyball tweeted out a question to Mark Birdie about the correlation and round-to-round. Mark Brody? Uh, yeah. About the golf effects. Yeah, and yeah. what struck me after looking at those numbers were how small they were. No, it's absurd. I, the question was, the, 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 there was this article about um, Tiger's putting. Yeah. And in reading it and talking, they talked to all these other players, Ernie Els, and these players struggle and they change their stroke and... And then you get to wondering, like, how consistent is putting anyway? I mean, it has to be that there's a huge noise component in putting. So we, so we asked Brody, hey, your strokes gained putting. It's the most sophisticated measure of putting performance out there. How does it persist from one round to another? It's .03. There's no relation from yeah. one round Nothing. to another on putting performance. So it's just ripe for overreaction. It's ripe for turning these golfers into head cases because they can't help but think, I'm hot now or I'm not hot, but it's just noise. He it's also noise. Asked, we also asked him a question last week, which was interesting. I, it was counterintuitive to what I guessed. Like, short to mid-range putts, do people make a higher frequency of them at the Masters or lower? And most people would say lower because the undulation... No. 
because the greens are so perfect and beautiful, it's actually a higher oh, percentage. Sure so it helps. Right. So it helps. Your worry is your worry is, your worry right. is Tiger's going to miss four footers. Actually, people miss less four footers to six footers at the Masters than they do at any tournament. But they three putt more often. They do yeah. three yeah. putt from, more from a often. From distance, it's hard. All right, we got that rolling off tomorrow, guys. We've only got a few minutes left in the show, so let's turn the corner. It's Warden Moneyball's over under. I'm going to pitch it over to Eric Bradlow to bring us home. All right, so let's start with baseball. A couple of these topics we've talked about already, but a really interesting one. Let's start with the Red Sox and baseball. <laughs> so 88.5 wins over under. Let's remember, they were 3-9. and nine. They were predicted 94.5 when the season started. Won 108 uh, last year. They won 108 wow. last year. Wow, that, that's a good point to remember. That's a good point to remember. And now we're debating 88.5. So we'll start with Mr. Red Sox, who's wearing a Red Sox hat, Shane Jensen. I'm taking the over. Um, I mean, they've looked absolutely terrible so far, but I do think that they will regress back to, towards 108 a little bit. They are not as bad as they are looking right now. Okay. And, and yeah. Kate? I'll take the over. What do we know about the Jays? Not good. Okay, they've got O's and J's in their division. I'm and O's look a lot better than we thought, and the, the Rays look loss. crazy good. Okay, I'm, st- I'm going to go over as well. I'm going over. So am I. Okay, oh, that was boring. All right. But I'm not sure we're great. I mean, I'm, that's what I'm taking. But it's fascinating that we're actually having this conversation. Yeah, 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 for Couple sure. more, really wonderful. wonderful. All right, so six and a half more at bats for Chris Davis before he gets a hit. So over. he's over forty nine. That's exactly the fifty percent line, over. by the way. Yeah, it is the fifty percent line. So he's yeah, it's exactly at the fifty percent line. So we'll start with Adi. We'll start Mr. I'm, baseball. I'm we'll going under. Under my baseball picks have been terrible. Wait, under by the meaning way. he'll have he'll less do it in, in the next he'll do, he'll six at bats. He'll get his hit in the next. Maybe six the pressure's at-bats. off mentally. I think he'll do it. Okay. We'll he's to, actually been, apparently he's had been hitting the ball a little bit better. It's hard to see anything worse. Look at his exit were, velocity were you, off the bat. Yeah, it has been improving. Been better. Were you watching when he broke the record? He hit a very decent line to yeah. left field. He yeah. Right. Minute, like Shane will yeah, go he needs one of those things to fall. I'm, I'm taking the under as well. I'll go over. Anti- I was with a diehard Orioles fan. Joe Simmons, and he was pulling for him to break the record because he's so mad about the whole thing. He just wanted to be as American. Well, 20, well, so he makes $23 million? No, no, no. Oh, no, no he's got $161 million contract. He's a 20, this year alone, he's making $23 million. And I'm million. going the over as well. All right. I'm two, going the split. over. Great. Okay. Hey, Eric, by the way, you got to get to that bottom category. you got to give us one from that bottom category. All right. I don't even know what this means, but I'll say, I, I assume GOT is Game of Thrones. <laughs> it um, is. Okay. It is. I love and it. And so, oh, God. does, go, does go, this guy's mean? This doesn't count. Does this mean anything to you guys? Point five. John Snow deaths. Does yeah. that mean something? Yes, yes, it does. Yeah, it does. <laughs> okay. So I'll go first since I have no idea what that means. I'm going to go over because there's a lot of numbers above zero. All right. Okay. I have a flat prior and I'm taking uh, the All numbers right. above zero. Yeah, I mean, he. No, there's he, only one guy. He can't. He, well, well he, no, he can actually <laughs> die he multiple he times. Died, you know, he has died in, in once. In fact, we I should probably take the over. He has already died I, once. Impeccable I logic. Over. Impeccable over. logic, Eric. Over. Impeccable. <laughs> Over. Adi. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm going under. I don't know why. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm taking the over. I think he dies. I think it sticks this time. No pun intended. <laughs> I kind of think he's going to die, too. Yeah. yeah. Well, I what's going on. It's a bummer, but, you know. No. All right. Just, just, get, just get to a few others that are actually meaningful. Let's go to basketball. Number of upsets in round one. There were the over unders 1.5. There were two last year, and the two seasons before, there were one. So you're going. The number of upsets, obviously just meaning the higher seed, because you could define upsets in different ways, by power rankings, by the seeding, 1.5 upsets in round one. We'll start with Cade Massey. 
I wish I knew um, the power rankings of the teams right now because that'd be the easiest way to look at. It. Do we think some teams are kind of misordered in some way? The, we have eight. We have eight um, series. You will need correct. two of them to be upsets. Would a quarter of them go upset? I don't have a strong intuition on this. Well, you gave us some past data. It was once and then ever twice, twice last year. Twice last year. One each the two years before I'm that. I'm going to go under. I'm going under as well. I'm going under because it's two out of three. No, no. You know, he said he gave me three years of history. Two, oh, twice oh, it was one, one, one. one. I it, so I'm going with the eight. only data I have. Right. This is the great thing about forecasting. Super forecasting. When you know nothing, go with base rates. That's right. Good advice. Yeah, I mean, I, you know me. I'm, I'm a, I, I, you're a coin flip guy. But yeah, basketball is super predictable. It's, it's basketball. less coin flippy. Basketball it's less coin flippy. Yeah, That's the problem. Yeah, so I'm going under. I'm yeah, going if under. it's for NHL, we'd all be over on that. Yeah. It'd be a higher number. And maybe one last, yeah, what? Maybe <laughs> one last one. Since we did talk to Joe Banner and we talked about the Browns, 9.5 wins for the Browns next year. They had seven last year with a tie. They were 7, 8, and 1. Of course, they signed OBJ. They've got good draft picks. Who's going to go? So let's start with Shane Jensen. We'll start nine point five wins for the Browns over oh, under. This is a good. This is well aligned. Um, and I'm remember, gonna, they're in a strong. I'm going to go under because of that strong division. The Baltimore is not going to be. It's going to be good. Pittsburgh will still be good. Can't, even Cincinnati's not a joke team. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to take. I'm going to take the under. I'm going to go over, but it's because I want this arc where they're good now, and then they just start drifting off, and it just kind of falls apart, and they're disastrous five years from now. And that's a better, more entertaining arc if they're better now. So oh, yeah. for that very I statistical reason, yeah. I'm going to go over. I'm going to go over because I think they're the best team in that division, and I think the best team in that division will win 10 games. Wow, the best team in the in the, in the AFC. North. I do. I think they're the best I, I, team I think now. They're, they're with, I, yeah, I think they've got a good few players. They might just put it together now. They might do it now. Adi, last one. Over under nine and a half wins for the Browns next year. My gut says below because I don't like producing forecasting over ten, except for like the two or three. You know, really the best teams. You only need ten. Are they the best team? I mean, where are they in the league? Come on, give me something. Not coming to go on. All right, I'm following you. You're an expert. Ten. <laughs> over. <laughs> All right. That has been Over Under. That, in fact, has been Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. We do it every Wednesday. Thanks for listening. For the whole team here, Eric, Adi, Shane, and Cade, we've been and We'll be back. Matty Datz, producer. Daniel Bruno, sound engineer. Appreciate your listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.